Church, it is great to be with you. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome everybody who's with us at one of our campuses or if you're joining us online or later on podcast. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Some of you can already hear uh, my, my voice is a little bit lower register than normal. And that's because, uh, just to be honest, my weekend started with a trip to urgent care and kind of an upper respiratory diagnosis. So uh, they they did the steroid shot and the cough suppressant prescription, and I'm on a Z-pack. So I'm, I'm taking all the medicines right now. Who knows what I'm even going to preach? We'll see. Um, but I was, there was no way I was going to miss out on the last week of this series. I've loved it way too much. Uh, and so Ed, before we continue with the final installment of self-portraits, and if you're new, I'm so glad you're with us. We've been looking at these visible pictures of God's invisible spirit. Before we get to the last, last one, uh, I've just got three, three thank yous to begin with. The first is to our creative team. Here at the Hills, we don't buy often or, or outsource uh, any of the, the videos that you see or the artwork or the design. That's all in-house by some incredibly gifted people on our, on our staff. They do an amazing job every series. I just thought they knocked it out of the park with self-portraits. So creative team, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do. Secondly, I want to thank all of you who, uh, throughout this series, engaged and, and weren't just present, but were, uh, were talking to me afterwards or sending me an email or writing a note or talking to me when you ran into me midweek. Thank you so much. Your, your comments, your feedback, your encouragement, it meant more than I can say. And I especially loved hearing some of you share some of your stories of how the Holy Spirit has been at work in your life whether previously leading up to this series or even in the midst of it. Um, one story among many that I could share uh, is, is a personal favorite. And it was uh, somebody who walked up to me the first week we started this series. And uh, she's been a member of our church for about 10 years. And she said that a few weeks ago, before the series started, she was just praying and, and she prayed and she said, God, I know you as father. Jesus, I know you as son. But Holy Spirit, I don't, I don't feel like I know you. Would you help me to get to know you better? And the next week she came to church and we announced that we were doing this series on the Holy Spirit. And it's just so cool how that was an answer to her prayer. It made me think about how Jesus in Luke 11 says that the Father is going to give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks. And so I pray that continuing even beyond this series, we are asking that, that God the Father would, would have the Spirit do more work in our lives, would make us more aware of God's Spirit. Now, the last thank you is something that, if you've been a member of our, of our church for a couple of years, then you've heard me do this many times, because I do it on the last, uh, the last weekend of every summer series I get to preach, and I never get tired of it, and that is to, uh, to call out uh, my favorite introvert, and that's Rick Atchley, our senior teaching pastor. Rick, I know you're not with us in person, but I love you. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for your wisdom, your leadership, your investment in my life, and also in our church. So at all of our campuses, can we give some love to Rick Atchley? Just a side note, Rick is starting a brand new series next week called Fix Your Focus. And uh, he's got, God's given him a great word for our church. I think it's going to be a great way to finish the summer, head into the school year. So make plans to join us next week. And I'd encourage you to bring a friend. Um, So for today, we have one more self-portrait to look at. And this will be, uh, this will be one that maybe... Maybe is uh, for some of you going to be ones who are like, oh, okay, I hadn't, hadn't necessarily expected that one. And at the same time, it is going to be, I would argue, the most intimate 
self-portrait of how the Holy Spirit interacts with you and with us as a church. We're going to find this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A church leader named Paul is writing to a group of Christians. He's trying to remind them who they are. And in the midst of a discussion about church and about different leaders in the church and people had different people they wanted to follow, all of a sudden, Paul asks this question, this kind of parental, don't you know, kind of a question, trying to bring up something that for him is obvious, and yet obviously the Corinthians have forgotten. So here's our self-portrait for this week. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, for some of you, that idea that God's spirit dwells among the people of God is like, duh. Been in church for a long time, heard about that. If the Holy Spirit wasn't present, why would we even do a a series on the Holy Spirit? Obviously, the Holy Spirit's here. For others of you, you listen to that passage and you're like, this is... um, this is kind of archaic language. Like this doesn't, you know, the, the temple stuff doesn't really uh, connect, doesn't seem super important. So here's what I want to do. I want to help you understand that this church leader, Paul, is tapping into and pointing out a key theme throughout all of the story of God and mankind. Because the story of God and his creation, specifically humans, is a story of presence, so when God first made the world, he made a, uh, a garden in which mankind could flourish, Eden. Everything was perfect. But part of the perfection was that God was personally present with Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman. He walked with them in the garden. You know, we like to think, well, isn't God everywhere? Yes. And we call that his omnipresence. But there is also the personal presence of God. This was how God was present with Adam and Eve in the garden. But... Through sin and disobedience, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and therefore out of God's personal presence. Now, the reason that the story doesn't end there is because we are Christians and not deists. See, just so you understand, deists believe there's this idea of like, there's a God, he's way up there, and he he made the world. He kind of wound the world up like a clock and then let it run and walked away. That's what some people believe. God's way out there, and sure, I I could conceive of an idea of a God, but he doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about this world. Like, we're just this tiny plant. doesn't even matter at all. We don't believe that. As followers of Jesus and as Christians, we believe that God is personally present in this world, that he will not settle for distance between him and his people, and the rest of the story of Scripture is pointing out God chasing after people who have been cast out of his presence because of their sin. We have a God who doesn't give up on us and who continues to pursue us. So, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, again and again, God comes to people. He is personally present with them. And eventually, some of them realize life in God's presence may not be safer, but it is far better, far more fulfilling. And once you get a taste of the presence of God, you don't want anything else. You don't want to be cast out of his presence. You don't want to be far from him through disobedience or sin. So let me give you an example. There's an Israelite leader named Moses, and he was leading the people of Israel through the desert towards a land God promised them. But, but through the people's disobedience, Moses was worried that God was going to cast them away from his presence, that God would just let them continue to travel, but that he wouldn't go with them. So here's a conversation Moses has in Exodus 33. Then Moses says to God, 
If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Okay, just so you know, Moses has already received a law code from God that was in some ways very different than the law codes of the the rest of the ancient people groups. He already had an an ethic and a faith as a Jewish people that was different than the rest of the people groups. They did not have a, a homeland. And so in that way, as a nomadic people, they're different from the rest of the people groups. And Moses says, I don't care about any of that stuff if you're not present with us. God's presence for Moses was the defining mark of the Israelite people. And to to be without that was to be without the most important thing. So, God agreed to remain among the Israelites. And he did that. The Israelites were out in the wilderness. They're camping. They are nomadic people. And I know with different, you know, depending on your family, like some people love to go out in the wilderness and camp and other people like camping is what you do to hate life in the tent so you can love life back in your house. I know everybody kind of approaches that differently. They're in the wilderness, they're camping. And so God says, make me a tent. It's going to be my campsite among the larger campsite of the Israelite people. And they called this sacred tent, the tabernacle, which really that word just means dwelling place. And once Once the Israelites made this in Exodus 40, look what happens. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God would be present with his people. This continued for generations and generations, even until you fast forward and the Israelites inherited the promised land. They're not in tents anymore. They're in permanent houses. They're in stone structures. They're they're in, you know, these, these, these buildings and homes. And so the kings in Israel feel bad that God's still in a tent. So King David comes and says, I want, to build, I want to build you a temple. And eventually God agrees to this with certain conditions. And it's actually David's son, King Solomon, who finishes the temple. And look at the pattern. They finish the temple. And then, Second Chronicles 5, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. This was the pride of Israel. That God now had this incredible, beautiful structure that showed he was present there. And in the temple, there were decorations and these these ornaments that were echoes of Eden and these pictures of pomegranates and trees and all these things that tried to remember the time when God was personally present in the garden. And now the temple's like that because God is here. But the people became conceited because now that God's in a house, it's kind of like he's in a box. It's kind of like we've got him now. Like he's ours. So it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter if we worship other gods. Even Solomon, the king, turned and worshiped other gods. And through idolatry and disobedience, eventually God was done with the Israelites thinking he was stuck in that temple or in that box. And so through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God rebuked the people. And Ezekiel paints this horrifying picture in a prophetic vision. In Ezekiel 10 the prophet sees that then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. God moved out. He was not going to remain there. Eventually, fast forward and the temple was destroyed two times over and the rebuilt temples were nothing like the original. And it seemed like the story of God present with his people was kind of over because the the temple didn't become about presence anymore. It became about power. 
And there was a corrupt system by which people would, by which the priests and others, the religious leaders would tax the people and take advantage of their authority as people in charge of the temple. So the question was, would God be present again? So then, a gospel writer named John writes and says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Once again, God's presence is connected to glory, but this glory is now encased in human flesh. Did you notice that language of dwelling among us? That's about as close in the Greek as you can get to. God set up camp right among his people. Just like in the wilderness. God tabernacled. But now, the infinite God is an infant. God is in human form. And Jesus of Nazareth was the personal presence of God breaking back into the world. So then he started talking about himself like he was the temple. Like his body was the temple. He said to religious leaders, something greater than the temple is here. And he meant himself. And so the religious leaders eventually plot and scheme. And it is undoubtedly from the temple treasury that they gathered 30 silver coins and paid off one of his followers to betray him. And so Judas takes the money, betrays Jesus. Jesus is put on trial And God, present with his people, allows himself to be killed and pays for the sins of the world. Present with his people, the powerful God embraces weakness on a cross. He's put in a grave. But three days later, just as Jesus would not be contained by a temple, he would not be contained by a tomb. Because on the cross, when Jesus died, there was this moment that the gospel writers record that when he died for the sins of the world, something significant changed in the temple. Mark 15 records that with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He dies. Here's the next sentence. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? What's this curtain? This was a curtain that separated one place, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. If the temple was God's house, the Holy of Holies was God's room. Nobody else was allowed in there except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when Jesus dies, the curtain, by the power of God, is torn in two and the point is unmissable. That's not where God lives anymore. That's not where people encounter the presence of God anymore. This is not how God will be personally present with his people ever again. It's not going to be about a building. Which is why later, when the followers of Jesus received the Holy Spirit, after the day of Pentecost that we looked at last week, then a follower of Jesus named Stephen would go so far preaching to a group of Jews to say this. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. The old way of experiencing God's presence is done. God is doing something new through his spirit. So where can he be encountered? Where can people experience, encounter, come up against the personal presence of God's spirit? Listen to that question again. Don't you know 
that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. I want to be clear. When Paul asks this question, this is not a question to you, individual believer. In chapter 3, this is a question to the gathered people of God. Hills Church, don't you know who you are? You are the temple of God where God's spirit dwells. Now, this isn't the only place where Paul makes this point. He's writing uh, in a different letter to a group in Ephesus, and he writes in Ephesians 2. He explains the metaphor more fully. In Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So is this a physical temple? Are we talking about a church building? No, he goes on to explain. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, you and I hear that and we're like, okay, I guess. Here's what, we, we have to get a little bit closer to what the temple meant to the Israelites. This was so significant. I was reading a, a book called Echoes of Exodus and two theologians, they, they talk about the tabernacle and later the temple. So here's, here's what they write. This was, this was insightful to me. It's hard for us to grasp the significance of the temple. Israel did not see it mainly as a structure or even as a place to go and offer sacrifice. Listen close. They saw it as the place where God came down to meet them, the meeting point of heaven and earth. So when Paul says, don't you know you're the temple? What he's saying to us is, don't you know that you're gathered unity by the spirit. And when you gather together, you become an outpost of heaven. You become, the church becomes, in a mysterious way, by God's spirit, the meeting point of heaven and earth. All right, it's crickets in here. So let's just, let's process this for a second. I know that this is a big concept, but I I just, I cannot overstate how world-altering this is. So if you're a note-taker and you've been like writing down all these scripture references, let me give you, let me give you a point that I want you to wrestle with. I want you to spend time reflecting on for your life, but also for the life of our church. Just the way that Moses was like, if we don't have your presence, what do we have? Here's my point today. Nothing marks the people of God like the presence of God. Nothing. Nothing else. It doesn't matter what we put on the sign on our building. It doesn't matter how we dress. It doesn't matter the songs that we decide to sing. Like, we are set apart as the people of God because the Spirit is present with us. And the Spirit has made us His temple. Now, this is a reality that's for the whole church. This is a reality that applies to the local church. Just the way that it applied to the Corinthians, it applies to us. This is why, for instance, as a church, when we talk about some of our next steps, like we talk about doing life together because it's so easy for us to hear things and apply them as individuals. It's a very American mindset in church. Think, okay, I'm God's temple. We'll get to the individual application in a little bit. But first, the point for us is gathered, God's doing something when we're together. Now, this is true not only when we worship regularly like this, it's also true when we gather in our community groups. Look, if you're part of of one of our community groups, um, I I know how just different weeks it can feel like, I don't know if anything really special happened. Like, we got together, you know, it's kind of block and tackle, like doing the same thing, keeping the routine. Or some weeks you're distracted, because depending on your group, if there's a number of kids, or if it's been a hard week, or you show up tired, 
Here's what I want you to understand. Paul was writing to this Corinthian church. You know where they were meeting? They were meeting in homes. They were huddled in living rooms. They were, they were gathered together. There were people on the fringe of society who maybe some days wondered, does our gathering even matter? And based on the way they were behaving, they thought they could do whatever they want. They thought it didn't matter that much. And yet, Paul writes and says, when you're gathered together, you are the temple. God's spirit dwells among you. And so what would it be like to, to have that expectation and mindset that every week, no matter how distracting some of the kids are, no matter, no matter what else is going on in your life, no matter how tired you are when you show up, that God's spirit is there with you, creating connection, inspiring prayers over one another, encouragement for one another, seeking ways to serve each other, that God works in community and turns us into his temple. But that doesn't just apply to our community groups. That applies to when we gather for weekend worship like this. Now, I'll be honest. I, I love worshiping with our church. I love worship at every single one of our campuses. There's, there's something special about, about each place and each group of people. But this reminds me, Hearing this question from Paul reminds me that weekend worship has got to be about so much more than what I personally get out of it. Look, I, I cannot wait for our senior teaching pastor, Rick Atchley, to start this brand new sermon series next week. I know it's going to be good. But I also know that if, if by next weekend every flight to DFW was canceled and every rental car broke down and Rick could not make it here, Rick would be the first to say that the most important person in our church is still present and that's the person of the Holy Spirit. That even if every worship leader sounded like me and lost their voice, that even if if the production crew couldn't turn on the sound speakers, if the tech team couldn't get the lyrics on the screen, if if the facilities couldn't get the power to turn on, if the, the power went out in Tarrant County on our weekend worship services, the most important power would still be present, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. There is something that God is doing that is deeper and beyond what we, can, what we can always understand, but we have to expect it. We have to lean into it because what's most important about our church is not a brand, it's not a worship style, it's not a strategy. It is the Spirit of God present among us, transforming us into the temple so that people would encounter God. Do you recognize we are offering the world As an outpost of heaven, we are offering the world way more than hope for eternity. We are also offering an encounter with the living God today to transform our lives. Like, this is why when Paul later in 1 Corinthians writes about worship, he writes and says that the Spirit should be at work among you in such a way that when people come in who are unbelievers, they are overwhelmed, fall on their face and say, God is here. You know, I love when I talk to some people after service who will come up and say, man, there's something different about this church. I came in, I just felt like God was here. That's not because it's a building that says, that says church on it. That's, that's not because, oh, well, we had the decibel levels at just the right range. That's not because, oh, the lights were really good. That is God's spirit in and through us. Not because we deserve it, but because this is God's plan to turn, listen to this, to turn us into the self-portrait. 
that gathered together as a people, we would be so marked, so set apart by the presence of God that people brush up against our church, in our community, through you, in our worship gatherings, when they come to visit, and they sense something's different here. Something's different about those people, and that's because of the presence of God. Look, it doesn't have to be a choice, but I'll take the presence of God's spirit over entertaining preaching. I'll take the leading of God's spirit over moving music. I'll take the empowering of God's spirit over churchy inspiration because we are joined together in the unity of the spirit so that we can be the place where the spirit encounters us, where we get more of God and where people on the outside brush up against the divine. Like, this is, what's, this, is, this is what God's doing among us. So the Spirit of God marks us and should mark us as a gathered people. But also, the Spirit of God marks us as individual persons. So I told you we'd get to the individual application. For Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, it happens about three chapters later. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's writing to basically battle this idea that was swimming in the Corinthian culture. And in their church, which was, well, I mean, God cares about my soul. God saved my soul, but God doesn't really care about my body. What I do with my body, what I put in my body, what I eat or drink, what I do to somebody else's body. Like I can do whatever because God doesn't really care about that. God just cares about my soul. Now that is dualism, not Christianity. See, we believe in a God who not only made us, but he made all of the world, which means he made your body. Um, and that means he, he blessed everything that he made. So your body's good. I mean, I know sometimes we look in the mirror and it's like, mm, not, not today, but I'm telling you, God blessed your body, said your body's good. He made your body. He cares about your body. Paul will later argue that God will resurrect our bodies and glorify them. We will be saved body and soul, not just our souls. So as he's battling this mentality, here's what he says. He has the same question, same beginning question. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, as Paul battles against this idea, I can just do whatever I want with my body. Paul applies the temple metaphor to each of us individually and says, don't you understand? Like, don't you get that like, your, your body, your life, it doesn't belong to you. Here's, here's a way to think about this. Um, so this happened to me a few years ago. It's traveling to speak at an event and I had a, um, a businessman pick me up who was going to be my host. Christian businessman, we start talking on the drive and slowly I begin to realize this is a very successful individual. He starts telling me about his company's not company, companies that have gone really well. And I realized like, wow, okay, this guy must be well off. Get to his house and, and I say, hey, I, uh, I need to just run some errands, grab a couple things for the event. Um, can I borrow a car? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. You can just take my SUV. Then he gets his look in his eye and he's like, actually, I'm going to let you take the fun car. Fun car. I'm in ministry, so I am not in the fun car tax bracket. So I'm like... <laughs> Okay. All right. Sounds good. So he walks me around to the, uh, the garage door and he pushes the button and I watch. And as the door comes up, I am filled with wonder and horror when I see this like shiny new convertible Maserati. I'm like, 
I look at him and he's got that look on his face. You know that look when like, even as you're a kid, you got a cooler toy for Christmas than the other kid. The kid sees your toy. Like he's like, mm. and, and I say, you know, I'm just going to Walmart, right? Like, and he's like, it's all right. He hands me the keys and I get in and I am like, I'm terrified and like, amazed as I'm driving. Every pothole, every car that comes close, I'm like, ah, no. And I, I finally pull in and park at, at, at Walmart. And I, I pull up, I park, and I'm getting out just as a father and son are walking out of the store right by the car. And I get out, and the dad looks over, and he goes, whoa. And then he looks at me, and he says, nice car. And I realize he doesn't know. He thinks this is my Maserati. Fun car tax bracket. So, so I, at that moment, I felt guilty inside. And I, I, I should have just said, I drive a 98 Honda Civic. Like, this isn't mine. I should have just confessed. And instead, I just shrugged my shoulders and I said, thanks, and walked into the store. <laughs> I'll tell you, when I finally got back, I have never been more relieved to hand back a pair of car keys. Because... I have never been more acutely aware of how valuable a car. Like, that's the most I've ever been aware of, the value of a car, of any car I've ever driven. And do you know why? Because I know the price that someone paid for it, and I know that someone wasn't me. Thank you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What's that price? The father did not spare his son. Jesus willingly went to the cross and died for our sins and so has ransomed us, bought us, and he owns us so that the spirit of God can dwell in us. Like, we do not, we we no longer are autonomous. We no longer are in charge. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not your own. Your body is not yours. Your time is not yours. Your attitude is not yours. Your budget is not yours. Your relationships are not yours. You belong to Jesus now. And you are marked by the presence of the Spirit of God. If that is true, it should radically change. Every day that I get up, recognizing, all right, these Hands belong to God. This mouth belongs to God. This mind was bought with Jesus' blood. Like everything I'm about to go do, everywhere I'm about to encounter, number one, I don't belong to myself. Number two, I am not alone. The Spirit of God is in me to make me, in a mysterious way, part of the way that people get to brush up and get a foretaste of heaven meeting earth. This is what God, by His Spirit, is doing when He dwells in us both as a corporate church and as individuals. So that's, that's where you and I currently live in the story of God and his people and his presence. But what knocked me over this week was realizing that this is not the end game. That we, as the temple of God, really are just pointing towards what will ultimately take place. There's a follower of Jesus named John. He gets this vision 
of eternity, of the new heavens and the new earth, and even of the new Jerusalem, the city that used to pride itself on the temple where God was. But when John writes about the city, in Revelation 20, 21, here's, here's, what he, here's what he says. I did not see a temple in the city. What? Why? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple is temporary, but the Spirit is eternal. And so here's what I want you to see. Here's this beautiful thing God is doing. Someday, there will be no more self-portraits. There will be no need for a building, no need for a metaphor, no need for an analogy with water or fire or breath or a dove. We won't need any of those things because someday, by the grace of God, we'll just get God and God will get us. We will be in his presence. There will be no meeting place. It will be that all of heaven and earth is filled with the glory of God. And we will be there to enjoy and experience that presence, which we barely get to taste right now. That's where eternity is headed. Present with God, face to face. No more need for metaphor. No more need for word pictures. Just us and God. And the more I get of God's spirit, the more that God's spirit takes over me, the more that that's all I want. I want to end up there, face to face with my Savior. I want to experience love that isn't, that isn't filtered through my insecurities or, or through my doubts, but instead is just in the presence of God who loves me, who died for me, who saves me, who sanctifies me. This is where it's headed. And so someday we won't need the temple. But for today, you and I, as a gathered church and as individuals are the outpost of heaven to point to that reality. So that closes the books on the temple, but I want to do something different to close the books on this series as a whole. Because whenever you start talking about the Holy Spirit, people start wondering, okay, so like, what kind of a church is this now? Like, what's going on? You know, like there's those kind of questions. So here's, here's something that I've been wrestling through. This is not original to me, but it, it's something that I, uh, I heard and I was like, yes, that's it. So here's what I want to share with you. In the, uh, in the American church, the Western church, there's, there's really, you could say kind of broadly, three, three teams. You know, we're, we're all following Jesus and yet there's kind of three groups, three teams of churches. So the first group would be what I'm going to call the theological team. These are our, our Lutherans, our Presbyterians, our Reformed brothers and sisters. Like if, if you grew up in one of these kind of churches, go ahead and just raise your hand. Actually, you know what? You guys don't raise your hand in church, so never mind. Um, all love. I'm just playing with you. But seriously, in the theological team, here is the strength of the theological team. The theological team deeply loves the word of God. The theological team is big on studying and, and writing commentaries. Most of the resources that I reference in a lot of sermons are coming from people on the theological team. Not all of them, but a ton of them. Because this is a team dedicated to studying and searching the deep things of God. They love theology and they love expositional preaching and they take a high-minded approach to discipleship. But one of the potential weaknesses of the theological team is that this team can get so focused on getting the gospel right that they struggle to get the gospel out and actually reach the lost and, and, and go out in their communities. Um, and that's a potential weakness for this team. But there's, there's another team, and we're going to call this team the charismatic team. 
Now, these are our Pentecostal churches, Assemblies of God, Vineyard Movement folks. If you, you grew up on the charismatic team, you can just raise your hand. Actually, raise both hands, because that's probably what you guys do in church. Um, um, again, all love. The, but the strength of the charismatic team is that this team loves the Spirit of God. Leans in, expects, and has an intimate relationship with God's Spirit. That This team, many of the, the, the people on this team, they walk around expecting God to move every day in their life. I love that. Here's one of the potential weaknesses of the charismatic team. One potential weakness is that this team will seek spiritual experience at the expense of deep spiritual and biblical truth. And so, one, you know, they so want Jesus to move today by the Spirit, but sometimes struggle to develop the mind of Christ and study and teach God's Word well. And there's one more team. I'm going to call this the missional team. Now, this team's made up of Southern Baptist, non-denominational churches, and community churches. Like, we can blame the missional team for skinny jeans being in the church. Um, I told you I'd, I'd be an equal opportunity offender. This is a, a team highly influenced by leaders like Andy Stanley and Rick Warren. And the strength of this, excuse me, strength of this team is that they love the mission of God. They emphasize church growth and outreach, excuse me, and multiplication. And I have, I've been highly influenced by this team. I interned at a church that was part of this team. But the potential weakness for this team is that they can focus so much on making more disciples that they struggle to make better disciples and appropriately invest in and mature and disciple the people they've already reached. So let me ask you this question. You think about these, these three teams. Like where, where should the Hills Church be aiming? What kind of a team do we want to be on? Here's, here's my answer. Here's my prayer. That we would be at the convergence of these three streams. That we want to be, we want to be a church who loves the word of God, is sold out for the mission of God, and pursues that by the power of God's spirit. This is, I believe, the future that God is calling us towards, that we recognize. This isn't about any particular team. This is about recognizing that As an outpost of heaven, we preach the word, we lift up the hope of Jesus for the lost, but we do all of that marked by the presence of God's spirit. That will make us a self-portrait to the world that will make people take a second look and see past us to see our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you for your grace today, Um, even even for my voice. But God, thank you for for the incredible gift of your presence, that you are with us, that you guide us, that you make us your dwelling place and you mark us forever. Would you help us as a church to see that there's there's so much power happening when we gather together and when we experience more of you, but that also that as we go as individuals, we are not our own. We've been bought by Jesus Christ. We've been made into a dwelling place for your spirit. Help us to feel the high calling and the great blessing of living as the temple of God. And thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and grace. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.